you crawl into bed at the end of the night and think, I'm just going to check my phone one more time. Then two hours later, there you are still scrolling Instagram. Does this sound like you? If so, the Wired to Tired Bedtime Digital Detox course is for you. In it, you'll get my step-by-step process to put your devices down, get better sleep, and wake up feeling rested every morning. When you sign up for the course, you'll have access to eight recorded lessons, a workbook, a habit tracking journal, our private Facebook community, and other helpful bonuses. Head on over to abbydesjardin.com to get signed up today. Welcome to Things That Keep Us Up at Night, the podcast. I'm your host, Abby Desjardin, entrepreneur, recovering workaholic, sleep evangelist, wife, and mother of three very expressive, courageous, and assertive girls. I'm on a mission to empower women through better sleep. If you want actionable steps to solve the problems that keep you up at night, you're in the right place. From finances to hormones, parenting to politics, relationships, and business, we'll talk about all of it. Let's get started. Our episode today could not be more timely. With all of the crazy things that we have going on in our world, grief is a part of our daily life. It can feel overwhelming and scary, but our guest today is here to bring more light to the subject and talk about how we can go about the very, very necessary process of grieving in a way that feels safe. My guest today is Dr. Sunita Iyer. She's been in clinical practice as a midwife and naturopathic physician and a graduate level educator for over 12 years at Bastyr University and the University of Washington. Teaching is her passion in the clinical, classroom, online, and patient care arenas. Her background and primary professional interests have been women's and pediatric health, specializing in pediatric and perinatal mental health. She's also the founder and clinical director of an integrative family medicine clinic Eastside Natural Medicine that serves as a teaching clinic and a site for an accredited primary care residency program. I've also been lucky enough to call Sunita my friend. We first met 10 years ago when she was my midwife. Shortly after that, I found out I was having twins and we could no longer work together. But As luck would have it, our paths crossed again when our kids started preschool at the same place, and we learned that we lived just blocks from each other. Since then, I have considered myself so lucky to have Sunita as a friend, and I can't wait for you to hear what she has to share with us today. All right, Sunita, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. We just heard your bio. And you have done so many things, but I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about just kind of the story of how you ended up involved in all of these things. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Circuitous and weird, like everything else that I do. Um, So I, it probably started with when I was working in Boston. So, and it was random that I got this job. I was working with pregnant and parenting teens um, in 
kind of a program that was like a hybrid between Department of Social Services, the Welfare Department, and Housing Services. So these were all teens who were kind of couch surfing, homeless, um, housing unstable, financially definitely very challenged in terms of resources, most of whom, although this wasn't a criteria, had experienced pretty significant abuse. All of them experienced sexual abuse and were parenting and pregnant. And it was a program designed to help them learn about resources and not just resources from the social service realm, but like their own personal resources. And so that's kind of where I got hooked on being involved in caring for families and realizing how much we drop people in our community. And like, it would make sense that like these group, this group of people was the most dropped, right? They were young. They were blamed for being pregnant or parenting. They shouldn't, they quote unquote, shouldn't have been doing that anyway. So, you know, um, and most of the women I was working with were black, other women of color. So, you know, in, in a lot of ways, our most quote unquote disposable people in our communities, um, that honestly, that were treated abysmally. So having a really interesting insight to seeing how healthcare providers treated them, how people actually in social services treated them who were supposed to be helping them. There was a lot of systemic stuff that came up for me too. So that kind of also drove a lot of my interest in health policy and legislation um, and all of that. But I really loved, I got hooked on caring for people and like just people after they've had babies and caring for young people and just seeing how that made a difference in the sense of power that people proceeded with if they were respected and seen and cared for as opposed to being maligned and disparaged. Amazing, right? <laughs> if you actually care, if you actually, if you actually, know, people whoever respect, would think that. <laughs> they feel better about themselves. Weird. It's so um, crazy how that works. <laughs> yeah. And are able to make, and are able to make the quote unquote better choices too, right? Like everyone must, loves to blame people, especially yeah. right now in our pandemic about like, well, you're making shitty health choices. And so it's your fault. And so you deserve to die of COVID or you deserve to, you know, um, all that comes to you be, for being, you know, poor or black or living in a bad neighborhood. And it's like, no, man, half these choices aren't even theirs. A, a lot of people made those choices for them. But B, if you don't even feel like your choices matter or that you matter, you're not going to make them. Right. Right. Like, what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the girls would say that all the time. Like, I still call them my girls. Like, I mean, literally 20 plus years <laughs> later, I still call them my girls because like, they, I feel like they were, I mean, they all were, um, I mean, they also like some moved on and others came. So, you know, over the years I cared for or helped care for a lot of people, um, in that, in that particular role. So it was very different than being a healthcare provider, but they would say it all the time. They're like, Sunita, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter what I do because people are always going to look at me like yeah. this, you know, like some dumb black team. And you're like, okay, cool. Uh, interesting. But it's not different than yeah. the narrative even around this pandemic. You know, people are like, oh, people who are obese or have diabetes and, you know, that's their fault. And so if they get COVID and die, like, that's them. I'm fine. I don't need to look out for them because they made the choice to be that quote unquote unhealthy. And you're like, do you even understand that so many other factors contributed to their health? <laughs> well, yeah. And it's this whole, I keep hearing this over and over again, where People are saying, oh, COVID didn't kill them. They wouldn't have died if they didn't have X, Y, or Z. And it's like, but they wouldn't have died had they not had COVID. <laughs> like, 
it's like this circular logic where it's like just snap out of it. Like, oh, it's you know, I get it. Everyone's just making excuses for why they shouldn't care about it, you know, because they want to stop caring. They want to, you know, they want to be done with this. I totally get it. But the blame game is really intense. And at that time, I saw it. And then systemically, our healthcare system operates ultimately in a punitive way. Um, so that's kind of, you know, back to your question of like, and how I answered it when I said, yeah, yeah. it's weird. It's like, this is how I answer all questions too. Uh, is, yeah, that's I mean, kind of how I got to where I am right now, which is, you know, then I decided, you know, I'd rather do clinical care than, than be like an administrator necessarily. So I went the clinical care route and um, decided to be both a naturopathic physician and a midwife because I loved that the whole spectrum family care, like before you're pregnant, while you're pregnant afterwards. And, and it's awesome. It's the most, it was the most gratifying piece of being in, in active practice was caring for families Mm -hmm. literally over the span of like 15 years from like the time that they thought about being pregnant to maybe like then getting married and having babies and then caring for them during their pregnancies and then afterwards and then being the whole family's care provider. Like it's that life cycle thing is it's gratifying for the families, but it's really probably the most fun thing that I've ever done in my work from that perspective. And, and it makes a difference, I think, to have someone who knows you, like what it's not like to walk into a doctor's office and be like, I've known, like to take care of a 10 year old and be like, I've known you before you were even in an idea in your parents' mind. Like that's kind of cool, you know, and they're sort of like, whoa, that's mm-hmm. weird. I'm like, I know, so trippy. Um, and then now I mostly teach these days. So I teach at the School of Nursing and Health Sciences at UW Bothell. So I have like half nursing students, half public health. And my love is, you know, talking about social justice, health and equity, health policy, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard you say this, you do so many amazing things, but I've heard you say, and it might not be the exact quote, but something to the effect of grief work is my life's work. And it, can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that what I learned in working um, with all of the young women that I worked with back then was that really they were all grieving. You know, they have been very heavily traumatized people by people in their lives, by their system, by, you know, all of the other hardships they experienced. And everybody was expecting them to function like nothing had ever happened to them. And I think about that all the time in the context of postpartum and family medicine, because the same, the same themes crop up. Like you're just supposed to have this brand new human show up in your life literally overnight, regardless of whether you grew them on the inside or, you know, you feel connected to them or not. And then all of a sudden supposed to be like, yay, I'm so excited. This new person showed up is super bossy and demanding, <laughs> keeps me up all night, doesn't actually tell me what they need, mm-hmm. but expects me to meet them. And then everybody else is like, aren't you so excited? And then if you're not, they don't want to hear about it. They felt to me, like just as a, like personally, and then what I see in other people is it feels like grieving. And part of what put that into real intense, uh, Relief for me was having gone through the grieving process many times over the last five years of having lost um, several very, very close friends, um, some suddenly and some brutally. And like, oh, 
this is what this feels like when you still have to show up every day like you care, but you don't because nothing matters. And that's kind of what the girls were telling me, like nothing matters. And, but everybody was blaming them for not showing up in their life, like everything matters, um, for not making all the right choices when they were given one opportunity in opposition to the 17,000 other opportunities where they were traumatized. Like, why don't you make use of this one opportunity? It's like, cause I'm so underwater for my own grief. Yeah. I can't get there. And it's like people use the word trauma. And I think now it's become like words like trigger and trauma have become very, um, widely used, which is cool on some level, right? Because we're acknowledging that those are real things that are part of human experience. And on some level, I don't feel like to me, it really cuts to the experience. Like what is be what is having what is experiencing trauma and what is being triggered feel like? To me, it feels like grief. It feels like this like literally being held underwater, this heaviness, this like flatness. Um where like nothing matters and it's somewhat like depression but what's different is that with grief like if someone dies like someone close to you people are like oh and they cut you a little bit of slack right sort of sort of um depending on your relationship they like to Mm -hmm. say they cut you slack (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i can definitely say that like there, it was interesting in sharing some of my experiences with people. Or some people are like, yeah, I totally get it. And other people were like, mm, I still, I just don't understand why you're that sad. Um, and some people like very close to me who were like, I just don't understand why you're that sad. And you're like, okay, yeah. cool. I'm, that, that's good to know about you. But it's different than depression in that, um, I mean, depression, we definitely demonize. We don't, acknowledge, yeah, you're not allowed to feel that day in, day out. Um, no way. Grief is sort of like that situational thing also. So in some ways a little distinct from depression for me, but I feel like so much of what I am interested in is this grief process. So when I say like grief work is my life's work, it's like I've been doing grief work in, in a lot of ways in, um, in a way that I didn't totally appreciate or identify because that's the part that's actually really interesting mm-hmm. to me. This like grieving process of, the thing we thought was going to be true and is not true. The person we thought that was going to be here is not here. The experience we thought this new baby would bring to our lives is not what's true. Um, the help I thought I was going to receive didn't happen. The life I thought I was going to have before a pandemic. <laughs> All the plans that I had <laughs> that aren't happening anymore. Yeah. And I... And I love it too. I think that like, it sounds weird to say. And so when I, the other part of grief work is my life work. It's not just that I experience it and I'm in it a lot. I love it. I love that very raw, vulnerable human experience. There is nothing that strips us down so drastically and dramatically and perfectly in the way that grief does. Uh, yeah, I actually just saw a quote today and I wasn't going to share it, but I like, says the art of living lies in the fine mingling of letting go and holding on. And I just felt like that spoke to grief Mm -hmm. so much. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you talk about the grief process. And I think when a lot of us hear that, 
we immediately go to the five stages, right? It's like, (laughs) what are the five stages? How do I do them? I want to check them off and move on, (laughs) right? Like being a very type A to-do list type person, I can't tell you how many times I found myself feeling that way in situations. Like, I know this is grief. I know there are five stages and I just want to do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, and then I think about the suffering that comes along with grief. And I wonder if that suffering is related to the fact, like you were saying, that we're not supposed to feel things. We're only allowed to feel the the good, uplifted, happy feelings. And if we're having Mm -hmm. anything else, no one wants to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, so the stages of grief is a very funny thing. I mean, I have read about that for like so many, like decades. I've read about that kind of stuff and been fascinated by that. And then when all of the various, like very intense griefs also happen in a very short period of time, I was like, wow, that those steps didn't happen at all. That was dumb. Who said that? Um, but, uh, yeah, the checklist and when it happens is that's, that's not a thing that, and what I've noticed for a lot of people is it's not a thing. And that is not that it's not a helpful construct. I mm-hmm. definitely find it's a helpful construct to even understand that there are stages of grief. You're not always going to feel this sad. Sometimes that sadness will become anger. You'll become, yeah. really, you'll become really pissed at the person who left and you're like, dude, why? That was so uncool. And then, you know, I think the part that is um, challenging is for a lot of people is the timeline. Like, so how long will I feel this sad? How long will I be this angry? It's a question a lot of people ask, you know, especially in the postpartum period. How long will I feel this way? And I was like, God, if I know. (laughs) But we can definitely shorten whatever thing was going to happen by getting a lot more support in place or at least uh, buffer it a little bit or make you feel a little more buoyed through the process, even if it doesn't, you know, go on for less time. The being blindsided piece by grief is that's the part that is really, really tricky and follows no timeline or rhyme or reason. And I think that's the part that has like personally been the most surprising about the grief process. Like, wow, it is Thursday afternoon and I just got like kicked in the butt by an intense wave of grief about something that happened three years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, and I feel like that's the messy part, right? Is that you're never really done with the process. There's no Mm -hmm. end point. You kind of just cycle. And at the most um, unexpected times, it just shows back up again. Yep, absolutely. And you also have no idea what the cycle could be. I mean, some people, it's the anniversary effect. That's definitely part of it. But then there's moments where it follows no rhyme or reason. But I think the part that it's, you're never done grieving has never been so true for me, like personally, but also when I see that, like when I look at all of my work clinically and the social services, I'm like, yeah, that's exactly true. Nobody's ever done grieving. So that pot, like the thing where people like, just get over it, just buck up, you know, just make good choices already. Just, you know, be a better person already. Just be happy already. You're like, um, that doesn't, that doesn't happen. Like, I mean, that's just not how it goes. Like it is a life experience that never actually leaves you. And on some level it shouldn't. It's really, it's instructive. Yeah. Yeah. I identify a lot with that. (laughs) So 
I want to get more into because you you touched a little bit on, you know, grieving during that postpartum period where your life has been upended and it's you're having to learn a whole new way of functioning, right? But I think there's also just mothering in general is just grief work also. Do you feel that? Yeah. <laughs> is that just me? <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Oh, I think so. I mean, I remember one of my mentors saying many years ago, you know, when you have a child, it's, you know, essentially like signing up to have your heart yeah. live outside your body, which I understood from so many years of caring for families and parents well before I became one. And then literally in the moment that he was being born and I was like grabbing mm-hmm. him from my own body and like smacking the hand of my friend <laughs> off of my baby. Room, or I literally was like, oh, my baby, you know, um, and I was like, oh, that's what that means. Literally, it's like someone took my heart out, dropped it on a table and was trying to pick it up and move it somewhere. I was like, ah, yeah. I need that. Give yeah. that back. <laughs> and that makes sense to me that like you you agree to live in this world as an insanely raw and vulnerable human for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And that is a massive grief. That is what, you know, that's grief being raw and vulnerable for the rest of your life. (laughs) That's literally what it is. Who signs up for this crazy stuff? Who signs up for that? You know, and that's the part that, you know, sometimes where I just, I don't get into a lot of the, I don't know, the talks and discussions about like quote unquote good parenting and like what to do to raise excellent children or, you know, even all these conversations about kids falling off with school because we're doing it remotely. Like yeah. that's part of the reason why on some level I could give two shits about those conversations yeah. personally and even professionally um, because I am so much more interested in the part of being a parent that is this grief work of like, what does it mean to have your raw, vulnerable, heart walking outside of your body. That's the part of parenting that I'm interested in. Um, that that grief work. And that has a lot more to do with like what do we need as parents in a lot of ways than it is about like what do these kids need? Yes. They don't need nothing. <laughs> these, these kids need parents that feel all the things and are willing to acknowledge it all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if that's true, like just like you said, like if we care more about then what our kids need is actually what we need, then we have to think about what we need. And what about if we lived our lives more wholeheartedly, more feeling, more vulnerable? We would automatically be raising kids who are more emotionally intelligent, more raw, more vulnerable, more wholehearted. And then we wouldn't worry about like, you know, are they getting fourth grade math online? (laughs) There's. They'll be fine. (laughs) Well, and like, what's our world missing? Our world is missing vulnerable, emotionally intelligent, wholehearted humans. Mm-hmm. They're not missing math geniuses. We have, a, yeah, we have plenty of those. <laughs> yeah. So that's part of, that's, I think the other piece of like, why I feel like the grief work is so interesting. It's less about like, I want to like muck around in the dark. I also love that. But it's like, what is the uplifting piece? The uplifting piece is what do we learn from that? Like when we are broken open, we have the possibility of reconstructing ourselves whole. Um, and then we can model that for our kids. Like it is possible to fall apart and to actually come back more whole and stronger than you were mm-hmm. before. Like breaking a bone, right? <laughs> yeah. The more, the more you have those little micro fractures, the stronger it is. This makes me think of just 
all of the things going on in the world right now. And simultaneously, it feels like every day we wake up and there's a new crisis. And Mm. how there are so many people that have for so long been able to numb out the bad the bad things in the world, right? You know, push it down, pretend like it's not happening, ignore it. And I feel like in the last six months or so, those people, like you said, it just kind of smashes you in the face, right? Like, oh, wow, (laughs) this is all happening. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering what grief presents differently in different people. So for someone who's never really tuned into that, What could they look for? What is a sign that you are grieving and maybe you're not seeing that that's what it is? Um, I would say anger is a big one. Um, and I say this, uh, actually for all people, like whether, you know, male, female identified people, born people, it's like we have a cultural problem, a social problem <laughs> in all cultures and societies around anger. Um, you know, it feels threatening. It feels scary. It feels out of control. Um, and very often the, the flip side of anger is mm-hmm. deep sadness. Um, and really I look at that as grief because most people think of grief as like, Oh, I must be crying all the time. I must be down all the time. Similar to how people think yeah. of depression. You know, it must mean that I just want to stay in bed all the time and I don't want to talk to anybody. And it's like, no, actually depression very often looks like hypervigilance, heightened states of awareness, anxiety, sleeplessness, you know, all of those things. And that we might be incorrectly or missing part of the anxiety, just like in this situation, we might be missing part of grief is that it's not about laying around and crying all the time. Um, it's very often shows up in anger for a lot of people, both men and women alike. Um, and for men, it's a little more acceptable to be angry. And very often women, we shut right. it down. Um, and again, this is, you know, stereotypical yeah. and more, you know, not, not across the board. And the idea that we, so then therefore we miss it, right? We miss that our anger is actually telling us about our grief and our sadness because we're so busy feeling like, nope, that's not an acceptable emotion. I'm going to bypass the crap out of that and I'm going to get <laughs> grateful right now, right now. I'm so grateful. Snap out and of I it. hear this all the, I hear this all the time in my, um, conversations with, uh, all of my female friends. Um, is that, uh, immediately as they, soon as they start witnessing themselves feeling grieved about what's happening in our world right now and has been happening, but they are also now more aware of, you know, cause there's certain, right. there's multiple layers to this. Um, they immediately bypass their own emotions to like, but I, you know, but I'm so grateful. Look at all I have. Look at my kids are healthy. Mm-hmm. I'm healthy. It's like, yeah, that's cool. You're all things can be true at once. Like. Your, your grief doesn't have to go away. Your anger doesn't have to go away. It is telling you something. That shit is fucked up. Yeah. Man. Yeah. <laughs> you should be angry. If you're not, I'm a little worried. You're not. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, anger is a big one. Um, and I think the other piece is anxiety. You know, lots of people. Now that we are much more, and we have a ways to go, acknowledging things like depression and anxiety, um, are acknowledging that about themselves. And a lot of people are acknowledging, you know, out loud to others, like, I struggle with anxiety, I struggle with depression, um, you know, and being able to say that out loud to more people than maybe they were before. But what's the, what's the underlying grief there? 
some people will start to look at it. Like if you've heard of ACEs, the adverse childhood events, um, and starting to look at, you know, trauma. And so that, um, numerical score about our childhood experiences and how it contributes to our mental, emotional health, as well as our physical health is starting to gain a little bit more awareness. But interestingly enough, it's very slow. Um, healthcare providers Mm -hmm. and people alike are hesitant to acknowledge the role of trauma and adverse childhood events. But really, if we put that all in one bag, we can say the grief, like the grief we have experienced and the collective grief, right? The amount of grief Mm -hmm. you've experienced at eight, which is some, is going to be different at 23 and sure as hell different at 44. And the grief you experienced at eight doesn't go away. All of these just get layered on. Um, so I think very often I see people write off their anxiety as it's just anxiety. And so I'm going to quote unquote manage my anxiety. I mean, as a healthcare provider, especially in the natural health realm, lots of people are like, I want natural therapies to manage my anxiety. Like, okay, but I can give you all the GABA and theanine and, you know, uh, passion flower you want. But like, the thing is, we're not getting to the thing that's creating that. And we can label, we can name it as trauma, but trauma is very loaded. But really, what's the grief? There is, there is grieving that is happening that is not being given space. And so it's showing up as this hypervigilance or this like, um, you know, intense electrical activity in the body that you experience as anxiety. Um, or for a lot of people, the bursts when it finally breaks the dam as anger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what, you know, I know. You really just have to sit with it and feel it, right? Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that people can do to help themselves do that or, you know, make it not easier isn't the right word, but are there any tips you can give people for working through the grief and being with it? Yeah. You know, um, yeah. And I think some of this is, you know, from my own experimentation and the experimentation of patients of mine that are like, okay, let's, let's do this thing together. Um, I actually taught a death and dying course this summer for, uh, for nursing students. And, um, and so we did some of these things together too. Um, for me, writing is a big outlet. So I have a ritual of writing. Um, and it, this is, I gotta say, as a person who was raised very agnostic to atheist, um, I had very little ritual growing up. So now as an adult, I am starting to witness why ritual can be so important specifically to the grieving process. Um, it creates a, a vessel, but also a time and a place and a thing to do, like to actually turn your attention to, but also the safety, because that's the other piece of like grieving and just, it's not enough to just say, you got to feel it. It's just part of the human experience to feel it because it feels really out of control and really unsafe to be that vulnerable. When you are that raw and vulnerable, it's like literally turning yourself inside out, being like, yep, you should walk around the world that way. No, you can't. You literally can't and you shouldn't. You should spend time in your day where you are protected. So when you are going to be raw and vulnerable and really like, okay, I'm going to let myself feel what's happening, you got to create safe space for that. Um, and safe space is another phrase that has is super loaded and now totally ruined. And thanks everybody who ruined safe space and made it about snowflakes and liberals, whatever. Oh, um, yes. But like, but you can do this in a million different ways. Like for me, I, it's like literally like I sit in my bed and I write. That's my space. 
So even just thinking mm-hmm. about like from a logistics standpoint, like little containers that you can create in your own home. People do this all the time with meditation, yoga, workout, like they create a space in their home for that mm-hmm. thing to happen, right? Or they set up their desk, like everyone's so invested in setting up their remote learning sites. Why? Because we acknowledge that creating a space for this work to happen does a couple of things. It means that it's more likely to happen. And we're, and we're saying that it's important mm-hmm. that we value it. So you actually have to create a space, physical space that feels safe also where you can be raw and vulnerable and do the thing, whatever that's going to be, whether you're going to lay there and cry, whether you're going to, you know, scream into a pillow, bang on the wall, paint on your wall. Yeah. <laughs> punch something. I was going to say punch something. <laughs> but like somewhere that this is the work that happens. And if you don't create the space, then you're not actually telling yourself that it should happen or that it's important. So part of the ritual and creating the space is part of that. And then like what you do in that space is totally up to you. That's also no one's choice. So nobody else gets to tell you what you do in that space. You want to write, you want to read, you want to sleep, you want to like pick at your nails, you know, um, great. Those are all things. The one thing that I would say, if I were to should all over the thing that I just said you shouldn't should on. would be like, that's a great time to turn off other stimuli. So that does mean like, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, other social media, email, other people's opinions, maybe that's not the time to call our friend, right? Like, even though that that's really something that might feel us still safe and in our vulnerability, it doesn't allow us to experience it because then we get into storytelling. So then we get into our intellectual mind and telling and relating details to people as opposed to just actually feeling like with our heart self and our back brain self, what's actually happening in our body and connecting with our body. I do think that there's something to be said for physical movement. Um, if we're trying to connect with how grief feels in our body, um, that if you want to feel something in your body, you should connect to your body, but not everybody is up for that yet. And I do both. Like I will generally like do some like stretching and write so that there's some level of cognitive input there and some physical input. Um, but I've actually had a lot, you know, my students kind of connect with their different rituals and they gave a lot of cool, um, for a lot of people, honestly, it was prayer. Um, and in different ways, not necessarily from a religious standpoint. Yeah. And a lot of people talked about the idea of carving out a physical space in their home. So it was interesting to connect with my students about like, what are some of the rituals you guys are doing? especially in this time where physical space might be really limited, getting time away and from stimulus might be really, really limited. I think that's the hardest thing for me is like, I have space to do that. Where on earth am I going to go that somebody's not going to interrupt me or a puppy is going to be chewing on my hair or, you know, so that's, that is the challenging piece. I get that right now. Like, and that not everybody has that um, ability in their homes anyway, without the pandemic to go create some space that feels safe, but there is, but you can do it in like really tiny ways. Like I said, like mine's my bed. I have tons of other spaces it could be in. It's my bed. Um, you could honestly like pick a spot in a closet and shut the door. Yeah. You know, I recorded some podcasts in the closet earlier this week and it was surprisingly comfortable. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's why I have recorded lectures in my car. Like I, where I'm like, there is too much chaos going on out here. I literally just have to go sit somewhere soundproof and I'm going to be in my car. Um, yeah. So I, I do think that um, whatever it is, it's just figuring out where we feel safe to have all of our emotions and to feel like, where do you want to go 
when someone literally takes your skin off, you know, when someone literally takes your heart and lays it out on a table in front of you, where do you need to be to do that? And so that's kind of, I would say that's the biggest task. And sometimes it takes people weeks to months to figure out where that could even happen. Yeah. Well, because it's scary to think about, right? Just the thought of where am I going to go to be that raw is scary to think about. Yes. Um, yeah. Which is, you know, always is weird to me that then we think about like how we have people give birth, you know, yeah. and, you know, and yet yeah. there are ways, there are ways that birth needs to happen for safety, you know, having more than one baby, you know, all the, all kinds of things, right? Oh, yes. But it's interesting in how like vulnerable, raw, eviscerated we are in those situations. And people are like, you should lay on this table in front of 17 people with bright lights on your body. We would never do that ever. Let me literally put your organs on this table over here. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and afterwards, you should not grieve about that. You should exactly. not feel any grief about that. You should only be happy. Exactly. Smile, be happy. I know you almost bled to death, but yep. you know, you're okay now and you're healthy. Yep. So let's move on. Yeah. You're alive <laughs> and your baby's alive. You have nothing else to go. I mean, it is like the height of spiritual bypassing, except that it comes from a medical standpoint. So then people think that it's like, you know, that must be it. Yeah. That must be the policy. Like, okay, I don't, I can't feel any other way about it, which is partly how I really got into like the postpartum grief work. Cause I was like, okay, this isn't just about postpartum depression. Even people where everything worked out and everything is working out are still grieving because the process by definition is a death. It is. It's the death of the life that you had, mm -hmm. even if it was planned, even if it was, you know, something that you wanted forever. It is a different life. It's a different life. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <sighs> well. Thank you so much for your time today. I think this is such a relevant conversation to be having, given all of the things that are happening in the world right now. Is there any last nugget of wisdom that you want to leave people with? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, honestly, just the way I think about grief work is even though it feels really raw and vulnerable and scary, it, it actually doesn't kill us to do it. And that is something weirdly that I'm just starting to realize in the last few years. It doesn't kill you. It feels like you might die sometimes because you're getting swallowed by how sad and angry you are sometimes. But it is, it doesn't actually kill you. And yeah. not doing it is a death in and of itself. Yes. Oh. So I know that you have a newsletter that you send out with all sorts of amazing writing in it. Um, do you want to share with people where they could find that and maybe sign up for it? Uh, yeah, probably pretty much all the stuff that I'm working on or doing is on my blog. Um, since I'm at my clinic very little now, I don't tend to keep my stuff there as updated. So probably the easiest way is just to go to my blog, which is drsanita.blog. And then there's like, what am I up to newsletter? Um, and you can look at the archives of the newsletter without necessarily signing up for it. But I do, that's kind of where I do a lot of my writing and where I share that with other people. So awesome. I'll put that link in the show notes also so that that's there for people. Awesome. Thank you again for this amazing conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Things That Keep Us Up at Night. 
If you liked this episode, please visit us at thingsthatkeepusupatnight.com or subscribe and leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. No, 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 I can't sleep, I can't sleep.